0: Hello, and welcome to Big Fish in the Talent Pool with your host, Erin Peterson, Partner and Global Talent Acquisition Consultant with People Results. In each episode, Erin interviews a corporate head of talent acquisition to shine a light on how they got there, what keeps them up at night, and their views on all the hot topics in TA Today. There's nothing Erin is afraid to ask because she's been there. Now here's your host, Erin Peterson.
1: Hi, Big Fish listeners. This is Aaron Peterson, and thanks so much for joining us for episode 41. We've got Trent Cotton, the VP of Talent Acquisition at Bureau Veritas. He's going to tell you a little bit more about what they do, um, some pretty cool connecting of business and government for sustainability, and some pretty interesting kind of hires that he needs to bring on board. But here's the thing with Trent. he's You know these people. He's the kind of guy who every topic that is brought up, he's got a story. And it's usually a pretty funny story. So we laughed a lot. And I really enjoyed getting to know him. And by the way, spoiler alert, or maybe just a shameless plug, um, he and I are going to be together again at RPOACon21. So if you are inclined to attend that upcoming event that's going to happen on October the 12th, it is uh, hopefully going to be a lot of fun, a lot of interesting uh, conversations. And he and I have a fireside chat where we're going to take this to the next level. So you get a little preview here and then feel free to join us for more of the same and a whole bunch of other great speakers as well. So there's my my sponsor plug for RPOA, which is uh, more information available at rpoassociation.org. And then of course, our friends over at ATAP, atapglobal.org, the Association of Talent Acquisition Professionals to grow your TA career. Make sure that you are connected with them. And now without further ado, here is my conversation with the always amusing Trent Cotton. Enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 41 of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. My guest with me today is the incorrigible Trent Cotton. You'll understand what I mean in a few minutes. With that optimistic uh, introduction, Trent, say hi to my listeners.
2: Hello. Hello. (laughs) Hello.
1: Trent is the VP of Talent Acquisition and Retention for Bureau Veritas Group, which uh, we're going to talk about a little bit because I have to admit I had not heard of them. But kind of a cool company providing services and solutions dedicated to sustainability. And we'll come back to that. But Trent actually draws a lot of his experience, especially his high-volume experience, out of the banking world where he has led recruiting in a couple of different places, and then done some HR consulting, worked for SunGuard, so has some outsourcing experience. So, Trent, we got a lot to talk about here, not the least of which is the book that you have recently written, and uh, I find super interesting. So let's get into it.
2: I'm excited. I'm ready to go. I okay. Kind of sad that whenever you're going through my history, it sounds a little schizophrenic, but I promise there's a storyline there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there always is, especially for people who have more than a minute of experience, right? right. I mean, you, you, you've, you've spent a few years in TA, and so, well, actually, not originally. So let's start there. So you started as a banker, right?
2: I did. I did. Actually, I, I put myself through school, uh, going through banking, started out as a teller. Went over to the desk side. Uh, there was a hybrid position at the time. This was uh, late nineties and, uh, it was kind of like a private banker slash business banker. And now, now mind you, at the time, I'm, I'm 20 years old, I think. So still going through school, learning some of this stuff, but you know, was, was trained by a very old gentleman who had retired two or three times from different banks. And I think. I learned the most about client relationship, cold calling and managing people from the three months that I spent with him just in the car debriefing that uh, it, it's just, it's probably one of my favorite experiences of taking everything I learned at that very early age. And it applied to my banking career, it applied to my consulting. And of course, it also ultimately uh, helped with my TA, transition, conversion, evolution, whatever you want to call
1: it. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Because my guess is it was all about the customer. Is that right?
2: But yeah. One of my favorite stories is uh, uh, Joe Butler was his name. And uh, everybody, everyone in the town called him Mr. Joe. And I mean, he knew every business. I mean, he could just about write a, uh, he could do the financials on the back of the client almost right then and right there. Yeah, we're going to be able to do this line or no, we're going to have to structure it a little bit different. He was just, he, he was just, naturally get to the that and uh, I was so excited because you know again I'm a 20 year old punk I found this um you know this this new client that neither he nor I knew anything about and so I scheduled a cold call and I wanted him to come with me I, I said look I want to kind of run this one and I want to debrief and I want you to coach me on what I did right and what I did wrong spent an hour with the client or whatever got in the car I thought I did phenomenal and uh, so I asked mr. driver I said hey so what do you think of the call? He says, you know, for an hour, you told me every reason why they should not bank with who they're banking with now, but not one dang reason why they should bank with you. Oh, there you go. You know, so, like negative, so you
1: did the negative sell and didn't even know
2: it. So God, I felt like I got butt punched. but I mean that I, I, I can still feel myself because you know, we had just, it was, it, it was like in the summer. Is the I remember the car was hot, the air conditioning came on, and I was so excited. I was sitting in the passenger seat and he just kinda of turns and looks over at me with his hand still on the wheel before we was, you know, get on the road. And he says that. And I mean just to this day, some twenty I don't want to think about how many uh years, but twenty years later, that that left an imprint.
1: Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And okay, so direct application to being a recruiter is you never trash talk the other opportunities that your candidate has, right?
2: Absolutely not. Yep.
1: Just upsell the, the the opportunity that they've got that you want them to take. You started in banking, mm-hmm. then you made the leap over to HR, but it was sort of even a surprise to you, right? So how, how did that all sort of come about when you decided to literally evolve.
2: Yeah. I, I call that period of my time the conversion to the dark side. <laughs> um because before that, you know, I was a sales leader right before I got into recruiting, I was managing four stakes for a mortgage broker, I had like forty or fifty lenders that reported up through me. And 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 I was young. I just kind of reached the point, honestly, where it's like a loan to loan, look, you know, we got another rate, we got this, we got this. And my daughter was, I think one and a half at the time. I said, if I'm gonna do a pivot, this is the time to do it. You know, this is the time to take the risk. And there was a contract recruiter position open at a bank. And I was like, okay, well that, you know, I know that industry, I know how to recruit good people because that's, that's the core function of any you know good leader. And I know how to build teams. Maybe this is a chance. Maybe this is something that I can do. And that was kind of the driving fact. But then of course, you know, I, I got a little worried going, okay, I've never done this before. And uh, I was reminded of something that my grandmother said that, um, why complain about something when you can go in, break stuff, and put it back together the way that you want to
1: Your grandmother said that?
2: Oh, God. Yeah, my grandmother is another one. that uh, just she has these uh, little quick whips. Uh, I, I'm known for my, my quick whip. And I mean, I can just pull something out of a hat. Uh, my grandmother is the only one that can just outdo me and silence me. So I mean, I've got tons of stories.
1: Was she in business?
2: No, no. Okay.
1: So, so she, this is just her kind of life
2: this uh, is lesson is. Yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, okay. if you were to meet my parents, I mean, I, I look like my dad, act a little bit like him, but if you meet his mom, my grandmother, I am spit out of that woman's mouth. Um, How about that? We really we close. So, <laughs> okay. Um, well, you
1: now this is getting even more interesting. Now I know. I'm gonna meet I
2: know. Her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's, oh, God, she's a riot. Um, but, right. you know, so, so both of those things, and I, I took the leap and started working as a contractor and I was, you know, air quotes, trained by three HR, I'm going to say HR people. They called themselves recruiters. I didn't really see them as being recruiters. And two of them just, it was like their life's ambition. They were—they were, they resented the fact that I got hired because I didn't have an HR background. I didn't have an HR degree. It was just, it was like they were the popular girls at, at school and I wasn't. And they just made my life a living hell. I was thinking to myself, like, why would anyone ever want to go into HR if this is the environment that they work in? And one of them gave me, I I call it the crap job. So after like three months of sourcing, now this was before, like, I think Google was around, but this was before Boolean was sexy. I mean, I honest to God, whenever I was doing sourcing, I would call the manager and say, hey, can you send me a phone book and a chamber of commerce listing? And I mean, they would like mail this stuff in and I would just start, you know, pulling the insurance sales. But I, I remember some of the recruiters being like just completely appalled that I, I would spend three or four hours cold calling. They go, why do you do that? I mean, that's so embarrassing when I hang up. I said, I used to walk into places and they shut the door and kick me out. I mean, mm-hmm. someone hanging up on me. I mean, I'll just call and change my name. You know? I've been
1: thrown out of better places than this. Right. <laughs> right?
2: <laughs> so uh, I, obviously I was doing a good job because I was, you know, doing the sourcing, pulling the list together and and all of that. So uh, one, of, one of the recruiters, she decided that she was going to give me a job that had been open for nine months. Yeah, I was like, you know, what the heck? I mean, I I can't out, I mean, I can't underperform because the dang, you know, it's been open nine months, so you can only go up. I said, well, what is the role? She goes, I'll tell you whenever we meet with the manager. So she calls the manager, puts him on speakerphone, and this is a guy, he was in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, he was, he hated HR. And he spent the first 20 minutes of the call talking about why he hated HR. I agreed with him because I knew what it was like to be on the other side of the phone. And so she does a wonderful job saying, well, we've got this new recruiter that we're training how to recruit who's going to run point on your job. So you can nearly imagine how thrilled his name was Fred, Fred was to hear this. So he goes, all right, Newbie, what kind of questions do you have since apparently I'm going to have to train you how to recruit as well? I said, so Fred, correct me if I'm wrong, you do like a standard LTV whenever you're doing a revolving or a um, you know a closed line of credit, right? And he goes, well, yeah, like his whole tongue changed. He goes well. Well, yeah. I said, is it like 80 percent, or do you, you know, kind of do it uh, a little bit lower, just depending on, you know, the, of course, the credibility of, of the institution. He goes. Normally, we do about seventy. He goes. Sometimes we'll do eighty to eighty-five, depending on the EBITDA. He goes. You know what that is? I said, yeah, I know what it is. And I said, so I just, I have a burning question. So let's say we're doing a loan for 75 percent. Yeah. Okay. Is that seventy-five percent loan to value? Is that from the net down or the the ankles up of the chicken? Because it was a poultry lender. I had, I'd been in banking for 15 years or, or 10 years at that point, never heard of a poultry lender. And, you know, Fred just lost his mind laughing. The recruiter on the, on the other side is like, what are you talking about? I was speaking Latin to her. And okay. that moment I realized something. I don't have to know recruiting. I don't have to know HR. I have to know how to get that client, just like my cold calling days from the banking. I have to ask that genesis story, get them off kilter, tell me about that job, and then I'll go out and find the talent. And then over time, i just developed really, really strong relationships with my clients because I knew the business. So ironically, the CHRO I work for now, Maggie Loriano, was the head of talent acquisition and business partners at the bank that I was working for. Now, mind you, I'm on contract, young child. This is the first time I'm doing this, major risk. I'm supporting the mortgage division. These are these are my people. You know, I know I know how they are. We're sitting. I got invited to a meeting and Maggie said, hey, do you mind if I come and sit in on the meeting? I'd like to just kind of see how you interact with the clients. This is about the six month mark of my contract. So I'm thinking to myself, OK, she's going to either terminate me or bring me on board. You know, this is kind of the, the do or die scenario. And Maggie, if you're listening, I, I'd say this to your face. I call her poker face because you never know what's on her face. I mean, she is just, I wish I had it. If I don't say it, it's all over my face. I'm one of those guys. She's sitting in the back of the room. And I, I honestly forgot that she was there because I was so in the thick of, of going through, we were doing an MMR, like a monthly manager review. And the CEO of Mortgage said, we're going to hire 45 more lenders. And I'm looking at the financials. And I remember sitting next to the CFO and I, I kind of like moved the paper and I asked him a question. Like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And he nodded his head and the CEO goes, Trent, is there something you want to say? I said, this is asinine. And he uh, he just said, well, what, what what's the deal? I said, you have two operation centers that are not performing at half the capacity or efficiency as your other six. And you're throwing 40 or 50 additional sales lenders in those two territories? I said, you're throwing money at the problem. Why don't we do this? And I just kind of laid out just a simple plan right off the top of my head that made sense. And he goes, huh. Why don't we run the perform, uh, performance on that? So now that sounds all well and good. Okay. I'm not going to go into the superlatives that I had because it was a little heated. And I remember like two days later, the CEO, he, he pulls me aside. And he goes, I knew the exact moment that you remember that your boss was in the room because all the blood left your face. <laughs> you know, because I, I just kind of paused. I was like, well, well but I'm he's. Kidding
1: he's your boss's boss. So is, is there something about that? You wouldn't have the decorum in front of him that you haven't
2: heard? Well, heard? he was the CEO of like the line of business. She was like, um, cause we, we had like CEOs of mortgage and commercial who reported the bank CEO and, and Maggie reported the CHRO who reported the CEO. So they were kind of peers more than anything else. So, you know, we broke the meeting and everything. And Maggie goes, Hey, you want to go to lunch? It's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and we go uh, Yeah. I know, I know. I felt like the walk of death, you know, the the the, the, the green mile. And so we're we're at lunch and she's you know eating and talking and asking me stuff and then finally, I was like, Megan, I can't do this anymore. I said, I don't dance around the bush. Look, I know I dropped some serious bombs, but that's how my clients talk and I just lost my head for a second, you know. But I promise you, you know, I'm professional, but if you're going to have to let me go, I've got a one and a half year old. Can you at least give me two weeks? And she says, what are you talking about? I was getting ready to extend you the offer. She goes, I don't know what you were talking about with the client. I can teach you the HR. She goes, I can't teach you what you had in that room. Yeah. And so 17 years later, um, I'm working for her again. And so uh, whenever I accepted the position, I told her, I said, I can't wait to tell you, uh, show you how much I've grown up. I said, I'm not as much of a punk anymore internally. Still I am. I said I'm just a little bit more polished on the outside.
1: But you know, kidding aside, I mean, it sounds like it was a bit of a colorful meeting. But what you right. demonstrated, I'm guessing, is business acumen mm-hmm. and the ability to kind of read the data and interpret it in a way that allowed you to come up with a solution that was non. We'll make it up in volume. I mean, it, it sounds like they were they were just going to pour more hopeful revenue into the top end of the funnel. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have the efficiency, so it sounds to me like you kind of have a propensity to think about things also in terms of human performance, yep. um, effectiveness, efficiency. What? So talk about that. Do you really get into that, too? Or are you more sort of all about let's just make sure we're following the data?
2: I like to let data tell me the story. And a lot of times, people approach data as, "Okay, it's going to tell me the story. It's going to give me the answers." I have never found that. It always it gives me more questions to ask that helps me get to the answer. And, and again, going back to my banking days, I'd look at a financial and I could run the ratios, and then it would kind of make me go, "Okay, well, why are you dipping here but increasing here?" And I go before I even submit the loan, I go back and I talk to the business and say, "Okay, does this have to do with this portion of the business that you saw uh, or that you showed me?" and that accomplished two things. I didn't know it at the time, so I was too young and dumb. But one, it told my client that I'm listening. And two, it told them that I was interested. And three, I was a consultant. I was I was invested in them. Yeah, and Not I, an order taker. Right. And I have that same approach in HR. So, you know, coming to Vera Veritas, I've been in banking most of my life, spent some time in healthcare. You know, I did consulting for a lot of different industries. But banking, I mean, I, I can recruit a lender with my eyes closed. I come into testing, inspection, and certification okay, what does that mean? You know, what industries are we in? What are the profit levers? And um, whenever I was being interviewed for the position, I was being panel interviewed by a couple of the executives. And one of them, I think probably got a little perturbed with me. And I think I know who it was, but because it was over the phone, we, we, uh, the video wouldn't connect. uh, So I was having to lean on voices and he goes, so what would your strategy for the first, you know, 90, 180 days be for uh, talent acquisition if you were to get the job? I said, are we talking about organizationally we're talking about like just for you. He goes, "Okay, just for my organization." So, okay. And this was fourth quarter of last year. So what are your top 3 profit levers that you need to hit in uh Q1 and Q2 in 2022? Well, we don't know those yet. I said, "Then I can't build a strategy." And I don't think he liked the answer. I think he wanted me to do just like a cookie cutter, oh, we're going to, you know, rainbows and unicorns. Yeah. Now, or just, just off,
1: off the top of your head talk theoretically, right? You you need specifics. You need details. I want
2: Uh And now I know more about some of these certifications than I ever thought that I would, you know, getting into some of the inspector groups that we have. You know, they're like we have a recruiting problem. And whenever I look at the data, the the demographic data, we don't have a a recruiting problem. We have a demographic problem. The average age in this particular sector is 55. There is no one coming in on the other side of the bell curve. So rather than trying again, trying to throw money and, and effort and time and focus into a problem that can't be solved. I'm looking at ahead of the funnel. How do we go when we find these younger people and sell them on this job and this opportunity? We train them, we mentor them, we put them through apprenticeship, and that's going to increase the retention and the loyalty. And then our competitors are going to be trying to come after our people. They can have the, the, the people that have retired two or three times. We don't want those.
1: If you're a regular listener, you know that I often ask my guests about what they're loving in TA technology these days. And I'm back here with Josh Zwayne of Paradox, the makers of Olivia, the conversational AI solution. On one of my last podcasts, the head of TA I was talking to said she still needs convincing when it comes to conversational AI being a a viable tool for her team. What do you say to TA leaders who are still a little skeptical?
2: Probably the question you get is, does it remove the human element? And I'd actually like push back on that a little bit and say, um, it's not very human right now when when candidates get ghosted or, you know, they don't get questions answered or they fall into some black hole. So, you know, really we try to set out to solve the problem of, you know, where does it make sense to apply technology to make the experience better? And where should humans still be involved? And how do we how do we make those humans more effective at their jobs? We don't view this as a replacement for recruiters. Um, we view it as a, as a tool to make these recruiters more effective at their jobs and, you know, frankly, to get them out from behind the computer screen and talking to people again.
1: How else can my listeners connect with Paradox?
2: Sure. So we built an actual uh, demo experience. So if anybody wants to test it out, they can text Big Fish to 25,000 on their, on their cell phone. It's not a full Olivia experience. I think it's an intro and it's a gateway and it's, it's the start of a conversation.
1: All right. And I appreciate the Big Fish connection. Great to talk to you as always, and we'll be in touch. Bureau Veritas, elevator speech on what they are, what they do?
2: Yes, we are the global leader in testing, inspection, and certification. And that runs the full gamut. So a lot of times people think, oh, they just do building inspection. Yeah, we do that. We also inspect the roads that you drive on, the car that you drive, the food label that you looked at today to see how much sugar or protein was in that bar that you were going to eat. We also, if you ever wanted to purchase a racing horse, we can also test and certify the validity of their lineage. We do sustainability. We are one of the leaders in uh, the O&G world, uh, you know, kind of the, the move toward hydrogen. We're working at the kind of at the tip of the sphere of what is the certification everything needs to look like. And to me, it's so fascinating because every day that I talk to someone, I, I, I'm a curious person at heart. So, you know, whenever I think about going back to banking, I'm like, Ugh, that's boring. Now, every time you're on the phone, I'm like, all right, wait, we, we test what? How do we do that, you
1: know? So lots of scientist roles, uh, data analyst roles. What, what would be a typical sort of? Uh,
2: any kind of inspector. So from building to road to structural, uh, we have a lot of laboratories. We have a lot of uh, environmental lab techs, bio lab techs. We have rock crushers. So if you want to uh, take a sample uh, from a site to see whether or not you can build a building on it, or if you want to mine it for particular minerals, We can go and we test it. And the first part of that is a sample tech. And they go and basically all they do is they crush the rocks. That way it can go to the next station to be melted down and then analyzed. It is completely fascinating.
1: Oh, bad. And tough to do some of that virtually.
2: Very. Right? How has Very. that gone
1: during COVID?
2: Um, it, it's been it's been interesting. You know, we're we're one of the, the few industries. that's kind of a, a we're we're needed. You know, we're necessary because everything that we do is safety. Just a quick plug: if anyone wants to understand just how many things today that our company has tested, inspected, or certified for safety, uh, go to YouTube and type in "Bureau Veritas Day in the Life of" and it's this. Uh, there's two different videos out there. Uh, both of them follow a family over the course of the day and just show all the different points that we touch and we make sure that, that everything that you're using is safe and up to par and up to regulation. So um, so back to, you know, pandemic, you know, we, we still, I mean, you can't crush rocks virtually. You can't analyze rocks virtually. Everything has got to be done in the lab. So the pandemic has has definitely been a little bit of a challenge. The other aspect is, I'm over both Canada and the U.S. We'll talk about the U.S. workforce participation rate. It's continued to go down or remain stagnant?
1: Sixty-one percent now, I think. 63% yeah. Before. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And, and um, I just read and, and I wrote a blog not too long ago about you know the the baby boomers. So you got two demographics: the millennials and the, and the baby boomers. That a lot's happening. Two million more baby boomers retired ahead of schedule. So that's two million leaving the workforce. We've already got you know. A, only 60% of the workforce actually out there participating. And now a lot of millennials are looking and saying, I just want to go and do a side gig. I don't want to do this work for a corporate or, or whatever. So it has been incredibly, I mean, leave it to me to change industries, change jobs. You know, I've been with of for 10 years. And we got like the trifecta of doom economically, from a talent perspective. You know, that just bring on.
1: I have a feeling you're up for it, though.
2: I love it. I Complain <laughs> about it, but I, I secretly
1: love it. Give him a good challenge, and he'll, he'll rise. Yes. Like your grandmother says, right?
2: Yes. Why ma'am. complain
1: about it when you can just break stuff and break sit. stuff
2: and do it? And, that, and that's <laughs> what I do. You know, uh, I think one of the things I love about BB is. Some of the craziest ideas I've thrown out there, they're like, hmm, let's try it. You know, the banking world is like, hmm, it's not black or white, and it's not a dark shade of gray, so we're not going to do it. Yeah. And, and I really just kind of have to do it on the back end. Now I'll just come right out and say, you know what, let's let's try something new. So just as a case study, we have this job called a fire essay, A-S-S-A-Y. And essentially what they do is they melt down the rock in, in very, very high temperature. So they're having to wear all of these suits. Uh, for protection that are hot by nature. And, oh, by the way, this is in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> so add heat on top of heat, right? <laughs> so not the sexiest job. But, um, you know, today we were in our uh, daily stand-up. That, that continues to be one that we just can't get people to, to do because of the heat. And, you know, somebody on the team had an idea. So, well, why don't we go after firefighters? You know, they work 48 hours on, three days off. Maybe if we can get the client to agree... To rather than hiring one person for forty hours, hire three people that do you know whatever shifts. It's a it's a way for them to make an extra little bit of money. And so now you know that was just the crazy harebrained thing, and now we're going to go try it. And banking would have been like, eh, we don't do that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, actually, you have a story about coming with some big ideas to your first meeting in banking, right? Would t- t- tell my listeners what you learned.
2: I get embarrassed sometimes talking about this, but so we were meeting with uh, meeting with our CEO and, and their, our COO, and there was a whole bunch of different revenue things that we need to get in order to, to meet our goal. Okay, and in banking, you have like business banking, and then you have like uh, kind of we call them emerging companies, middle market, and then your large corporate, and then your uh, CIB or corporate investment banking, and all those are, are driven by the revenue size. And he wanted to go and hire a whole ton, like 50 some odd lenders at the top of the range. All right. Makes sense. Average deal size is, I don't know, $40 million, $50 million, $500 million. You're going to make more. Being a banker, I just kind of said, aren't our margins a little bit low? Because a lot of times we're participating in these deals with other banks. and We're we're not getting all of the Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we get, you know, this one FTE goes in and they do this, then, you know, we have 50 of them. We'll hit our number. And so I got with our data analytics team and said, okay, let's do a survey of the market. Let's look at this. And luckily, our head of analytics came from the line of business like me, from commercial. So both of us kind of knew the portfolio side, and we just applied the, the HR analytics. And rather than going and doing exactly what the client said, again, our COO, who learned uh, <laughs> learned my nickname from, from grade school of being the Riddler. And sometimes he would go, okay, Riddler, what do you have now? Uh And we just sat down and we we laid it out and said, look, you know, you could actually hire 50 in this segment and 100 in this segment and accomplish the same that you want to do. And you're going to have higher retention. There's more out there. We're not going to have to pay all of these hefty soft bonuses. It's a better strategy. So rather than giving me the solid win, he said, why don't we do a compromise? I'll cut the top end down to 10 and then we can do this in this market and this in this market. And so we were able, we came about 80% of the goal in terms of the hiring, but the impact, we increased the impact of our bottom line by 20% by doing that strategy. And his outlandish idea of just let's go and do this because it makes more sense. Again, that's where as a talent professional, I've got to be able to have that relationship with my clients say, I hear you, but no, but. No, we're not going to do this. But let me give you another solution. And and we actually went with him with like three different things that he could choose. But we knew which one he was going to. But over time, rather than just kind of throwing things out the out, at the wall, usually in October. So I'm, I'm having a little bit of uh, anxiety because this is the first time in ten years I'm not expecting a call from him saying, "Oh, I want to hire this many people." And you know, it was it was a song and dance every September and October. We would go through the same thing, but. He, he always came to us first and said, this is what I'm thinking. Validate it.
1: Nice. Nice. Okay. So, but, uh, but again, your knowledge of the business really played a role there, right? So it can it even be overstated how important it is for recruiters to understand the business first before they strike out and try to fulfill the need?
2: No, I mean, you need to get in there and see, touch and feel. Um, I think uh, if you're starting with a new firm within your onboarding, Part of your mandate should be, hey, I want to spend two days doing the job or being in the job that I'm going to be recruiting for. So, if it's a commercial lender, go ride and, and spend a day with a commercial lender. If it's a rock crusher, go and spend a couple of hours with the rock crusher and then watch that sample go all the way through the lab. So, when you're talking about it, you have you have some knowledge, but then also meet with that senior leader and say, okay, it's a rock crusher. What's the big deal? Well, if you don't have enough of that that first part of the process. Every time that sample moves through, it's collecting revenue. So now I know that if we don't have enough rock crushers, I'm going, man, these are entry-level jobs. No, 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 that's the top of the funnel. And the bottom of the funnel is where we start printing the money. So I've got to make sure that we've got those samples coming in. Yeah. And understanding that actually becomes a competitive edge. So, you know, there was a point early on when I joined that we were in dire straits. I mean, we weren't able to meet some of the expectations from our clients contractually, and because of the recruiter understanding, she joined, I think, in March. And I, I, I warned the client because I brought her over from the bank. I said, you're going to be so excited now. Once she gets in there, she's going to ask you a ton of questions. Just answer them. Just give her what she needs. And now we're at a point where we're our competitive edge is that we're one of the few that are actually staffed and we're growing and we've got a pipeline. So we're able to go out and get business from our competitors that are just scratching their heads trying to figure out how we're doing it. That... That's the stuff I love.
1: Well, and there's so much there to unpack. But the one thing I want to key in on is you set your client's expectations Mm -hmm. regarding your new recruiter. And and that is, in my experience, the key to everything. Candidate experience, hiring manager experience. If you set expectations, it gives you a little space to get stuff done. And I think there's a tie to that in... The book you wrote.
2: Just, am I right. Uh, okay. So let's pivot
1: because I want listeners to hear about this. Okay. Shameless plug here, but I bought the book. I downloaded it to my Kindle, by the way. FYI. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, and I also am uh, a follower to your website, which is sprintrecruiting.com. How, hang on. How did you get that URL?
2: Are you serious? <laughs> oh, Nobody else had that yet? Oh, my God, I was so lucky. and 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 the thing is is that, you know agile methodology, which is what is kind of based on, has been around for a while. Apple uses yeah. it, Facebook, it, I mean, it's this the sexy term. I was forced to go through the agile training, the combine training, design thinking, and uh, I mean, kicking and screaming. I just did not want to go. But I came out of all three of those going there's I think there's implications here. I mean, it, 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 we're not producing a product or service. We're producing a commodity which is talent. And it's a process-driven approach. Yeah. There's, there's Which is a service, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, I, I dug in a little bit deeper and I, I listened to Jeff Sutherland's book on Scrum and that's where it all clicked. Going through all of this, I realized that there were four pitfalls in how recruiting is normally done. And if I, I promise you, if we were to see our audience, as I go through them, all of, the, all of them would be like nodding their head. The first one is, Everything is a priority, which means nothing is a priority. It's the, the chicken little effect. At the time I was supporting our tech division, our CIO, he just got on my nerves so incredibly bad because it's like, this is a priority. And then by four o'clock, the priority changed and I'm constantly trying to reallocate resources and we never got anything done. The second one is that recruiting is just, I mean, it's just like a, a, a machine. And, and sometimes you need to stop and go, what's working and what's not? But how recruiting is now, no one no one takes the time to actually stop and look. The third pitfall is that a lot of times clients' view of recruiting a recruiters' view of recruiting is incredibly misaligned. Recruiters yeah. are going, we're filling 100 jobs. The client's going, you're not filling the right ones. And that is driven by the fourth pitfall, which is the feedback loop is, is just completely broken. So I was very lucky. You know, I wrote the book, but I, I have to give kudos to the team that I've drugged through the beta version of this. I mean, we we tested all kinds of things. They were they were shot at, bumped, and, and everything. But now we've we've got a really, really great methodology. So the four principles that combat that is one is the sprint itself. You sit down with your client every two weeks and you show them the open roles within their division and say in the next two weeks, you put a time period on them, what needs to be recruited in order for your business to make profit, maintain profit, or mitigate risk, okay? So you're taking 60 jobs and saying, all right, client, in the next two weeks, what's realistic? The next step is defining the priority is the job of your your client, not yours. So what we do is we use points and say, okay, 60 jobs. Now we're down to two weeks. What's realistic to get done? Let's say they pick 15. All right, of these 15, I want you to prioritize them using points. You have $100 of my time over two weeks. Where do you want to spend it? And then they rank it out. So imagine your job board now, you look at it and you you can't, I mean, where do you start? Is it the the one that's the oldest, the one with the most applications, the manager that's getting on your nerves? In Sprint, now you have a prioritized job board driven by your client, rank order, you know, 50-pointer, 25-pointer, 20-pointer, now you know how to start your day. That's when the next principle comes in, which is whip limits or work-in-progress limits. Think of whips as dominoes. That first domino, you don't hit it until you have five candidates sitting in front of that manager to review or to interview. Once you do that, you stop working on that first priority role and you work on the next one. So I'm a nerd. If uh, physics and just about everything except country music, I will like do some kind of research on. Right. And in physics, if you look, whenever you move that, the, the amount of energy that you exert to hit that first domino is completely amplified almost you know, by the number of dominoes at the end. And the same thing happens in recruiting. So I'm not going to work on your position at 50 points because you have five candidates. I'm going to work on your partners at 25 points. And then once you do the feedback, which is that fourth uh, principle, you give me feedback, I go back, maybe I submitted five candidates, I move them over into interview, and then I go right back to sourcing on the one that I don't have any candidates on. that's next in priority. And so what that does is it creates like a drumbeat. And the thing that uh, is most interesting is the feedback loop. So whenever I'm doing consulting, I I can't tell you how many times uh, recruiters will go, oh, we have an SLA with a client. I'm like, oh, okay, well, what do they have to do? What do you mean? I said, So, I mean, I'm I'm assuming that you say, we'll do this by this point. This is what you can expect. What do they have to do? And and when do they have to do it? Well, they don't have to do that. So that's not an SLA.
1: You're looking for 24-hour feedback or something like that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. they don't have that. And so in Sprint, it's 48 hours. And um, I have the executive order uh, for those of us that are old enough to remember the song. I call it executive order 867-5309. Project code is ICE. And that means I've called and cared enough. So after that 48 hours, hiring manager doesn't give us feedback. We go one level up. We don't get feedback there. The recruiters email either their manager or me. And I ICE the position means nothing happens on that position until the next sprint. That protects our resources and helps us make sure that we're, we're fixing the rest of the... Um,
1: yeah. And I would imagine it also provides a little air cover for recruiters, right? Totally it, it helps them understand where to end their effort, yep. where to begin another effort, and mm-hmm. that they don't end up being sort of in limbo of, well, they didn't get back to me, so I can't do it. Also for candidates, candidate experience, right? Oh I my mean, gosh,
2: poor candidates that just get lost in the shuffle. Now we can say, look, give me you know, 48 hours, I should be able to have feedback for you. Yeah, We set that expectation and we don't lose candidates as a result.
1: Right. Next shameless plug. You and I are on uh, the upcoming RPOA con event, which is uh, coming up in October, October 12th, rpoassociation.com if you want to go and and register for this. And we're going to talk about this, but we're going to talk about it in the context of RPO. So I'm just curious to know what's your connection with RPO that you think RPO providers and buyers could learn from sprint recruiting.
2: Well, the, the biggest thing is the prioritization, especially let, let's talk first about being the provider uh, as, a, as an RPO. You know, you, you've got all of these clients and, and chances are, of course, you're doing the high volume. Forcing your client to be able to rank even that that high volume is going to help you be able to really just, I mean, the, the sheer benefit of an RPO is there is, I mean, just vast resources but they're spread too thin the way that they're doing it now. With that prioritization, I mean, you're, you're taking it from like a flat two by four to a just well-sharpened spear, and you're going to be able to deliver more qualified candidates quicker to your clients and be able to, I mean, I mean of course, that translates to, to, to revenue for the RPO, but then on the, on the client side, you know, if, if I'm a client, I'm working with you as my RPO leader, I want to give you that prioritization and know that you're going to get me candidates quicker Because I've given you, this one is critical. I don't care the other 50 that are out there get filled. In the next two weeks, if this one is not filled, this one is a failure. I know that you focusing all of your resources on that, probably in 48 hours, I'm going to have a candidate that's worthwhile. So it's Mm -hmm. mutual beneficial.
1: Yeah. Uh, Are there any RPOs that you know who are deploying this methodology?
2: Not yet, but I hope that changes.
1: All right. Yeah. Okay. So back to your question of getting to know your customers. What's next for you, Trent? Looks to me like there might be a commercialization of the whole concept coming up. Am I taking it too far?
2: Yeah, no, you're not. You're not. Our mutual friend, actually, uh, Ben Banks and I are going to be releasing some online schools. So he did, um, you know, he does the HR summer school, which was fun. I, I got to speak on that and we had a lot of fun. And um, we're going to be working on the online content. And I'm also working with another partner uh, who will take, uh, I'm going to take that online content, kind of make it like a, one or two day facilitator led and do some certification. So that way, you know, if there's a large company that wants to take this and wants their recruiters trained and wants someone to kind of walk alongside of them, um, you know, I'll have this partner that will be able to do that. And, um, you know, part of the package would be that I'd be there for consulting and uh, challenging and asking all the questions that only I get to ask because no one wants to answer.
1: Outstanding. Well, my only final question about the book is I'm an audible person too. I, I, mm-hmm. I like Kindle, but I actually like audible more. So when is the audible version read by Tom Hanks coming out?
2: I don't know. I don't know. Uh, if he's in your network, just ping him and let me know. I'd owe you a favor. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, actually, um, I just, I've got to believe that there's a, an audience out there who actually would consume it audibly because, you know, the, the, the story to actually, you could do it. You've got the voice for radio. No,
2: I know. You know, and you said Tom Hanks. I was thinking, actually, the way it's written, probably be more like uh, Danny DeVito would be up <laughs> for it, but, uh, <laughs> or Howard Stern, you know, somebody because well, you know, there's some language in there. But
1: speaking of talent, talent abundance, yes, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, but no, that's that's definitely on the docket uh, of, of trying to get that out on Audible.
1: Awesome. All right, I'm sure you have younger professionals coming to you occasionally and saying, mm-hmm. Trent. What wisdom do you have? What should I do? How should I think about my career? What advice do you give them based on all of your battle scars?
2: Oh, gosh. The first one is uh, never forget your client. Everything that you do you your first question should be, how does that affect my client? So in recruiting, you, have, you you essentially have three. So you have your hiring manager, you have your candidate, and then you also have your employee because a lot of us kind of help with, with internal transfers. So any change to the process, anything that you want to learn, how is it going to benefit and affect my client experience so that that's that's the first thing i call it client obsession i stole that from jeff bezos yeah uh, and it's actually on the recruiter scorecard the first section is client obsession cool um the other thing is you know you, you talked about audible i love i love listening to things about the industry about business and, and all of that but um, very recently i've started getting into like biographies what what did that individual learn that I can apply to yeah. recruiting? You know, I mean, sprint recruiting was birthed out of that. You know, just someone going in and doing something that was completely unrelated and bringing that in and, and it's completely transformed how I look at recruiting and how, you know, a lot of other people look at it. Uh, one of the ones that I'm reading now, I think you and I talked about, we, we love books, 33 um, Strategies of War. It's fantastic. It's just like fantastic for me because it brings in the historical, it brings in the tactical and the strategy. Uh, but whenever I look at it, Yes, it's fantastic and it's great, but I'm also looking at, okay, how can this help me be able to overcome obstacles in, in the way, you know, uh, not treating them like the enemy, but essentially they are the enemy. The obstacles, my enemy. Um, the other thing is, is always be curious. Always ask why, always understand the why. And I know it's the Simon Sinek, understand the why. It's not, not necessarily from just a uh, intrinsic standpoint of, of understanding your client. Of course, that's important. Why are you hiring this position? Why is this position important to the whole profit you know, uh, scheme for, for your particular company? Why is what you're doing today or how is what you're doing today going to meet the needs of your client in five years? Where's the company going in five years and why? All of that kind of stuff. And if they're not willing to answer the question why, then I want to challenge you to go find a company that does.
1: Right. It's the three-year-old in all of us. We should wow. ask why and why and why, over and yes, over. Yes. The, the biography, historical, even the learnings from war reference, um, I've heard you talk about the Eisenhower box. Talk, talk about how, how do you use that for prioritization, right?
2: Yes, I do. I do actually. I meet with my leaders. So part of, you know, part of sprint, of course, is having the daily stand up with your team. Uh, We do it as a full recruiting team, both countries, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every Monday for 30 minutes to sit down with the the leaders of the team. And I, I force them to go through a do and decide. So everything that comes in for the week, I'm going to put it up against what are my dues? Those are things that I've got to get done this week in order to be successful. My decides are things that I need to schedule. So that could be I need to decide how I'm going to approach you know, this demographic issue within this particular talent pool. So what I do is under the decides, I go and I schedule time. So think time, you know, analyze data, whatever it is, go and, and start your week off doing that do or decide. And then as you go through the week, anything that comes in, if it doesn't hit that do, one of those top three that you can try to limit to three do's for the week. You know, some overachievers they go, I am want to do 15 things. I mean, come on, I don't do 15 things a month. Let's just try to do three, three a week. You know, um, if it doesn't measure up against that do, you deny it or you ask them to delay the meeting. Now you're not going to make a lot of friends, but over time you will retrain people. So in our organization, now people know, don't put me on a calendar invite unless you have an agenda because I decline. I don't care what level you are. Yeah. Your time and my time is equally valuable. So that, yeah. that's kind of how I use the, the. Yeah. So it's
1: do decide,
2: delay or deny,
1: deny. Ooh, mm-hmm. man! That deny sounds like boundary setting.
2: Oh, it's so much fun. it's, um, so much fun.
1: it's it, uh, you know what though. I I have to say recruiters aren't good boundary setters, and I'm putting myself in that category because we were people pleasers, mm-hmm. right? So so that's that's actually a paradigm shift.
2: It is. But it tools
1: is. are for that, right? So it's they are. And, and and
2: I'll tell you the yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean the biggest thing in sprint recruiting. When people read the book, they get so excited and they're like, "Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that." And they they, they tend to miss the chapter that I talk about the two mindset shifts. The first one is with you. You don't need to touch every wreck. If there's 15 wrecks that the client says are important, those are the ones that you're That's about the heck with the rest of them. All right. And the other one is helping your client through that that transition of mindset of mm-hmm. everything cannot be a priority and and holding the line. And that's where I, that, that's why I kind of bring that do or decide in with the leaders. Because I know if I start training them on that, they're going to start training the recruiters. And we're multiplying that that efficiency the mindset change throughout the organization. And that, that's that's, I think, one of the things that was kind of surprising to me. When we implemented this at the bank, the implications of what our little team started resonated throughout the bank. People started going, okay, well, is this really a priority? Well, do we really need to fill this now? Or do we even need this position? It's been open for 60 days. And it wow. completely changed, you know? And it was... It was kind of surreal because there was at one point, I remember a couple of us went out to eat and, uh, back when we could like have offsites and stuff. And uh, we were drinking and all of us got the same email and we looked at it and I said, okay, how many drinks have I had? Because I think you just said that we don't even need to have this wall open because it's been open for 90 days. <laughs> and You know, it's not even been on the sprint. And this was like senior level executive. I said, did y'all read that? You know,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so it, it was fun.
0: Culture change, I think is culture, what that's called. Culture yeah. change. Yes.
2: Wow.
1: Outstanding. I mean, nuggets of gold, y'all. That's that's what you just got from Trent Cotton right here on Big Fish in the Talent Pool. So thank you so much, Trent, for all the great advice and and really thought leadership. I mean, it, it, it obviously, you've done the work, but then you wrote the book, and you can yeah. share with other people. By the way, one last question. How did you write the book? Like, you have a day job. So what? how did that get done?
2: I put it on a sprint schedule, of course.
1: Oh, <laughs> man. I set you up and
2: sure you, you, it totally you, set me up
1: nice layup i love it okay yeah. oh but that actually brings us back to no sports analogies or do you sports what what is that rule you have
2: i have no sport <laughs> i have no understanding of sports whatsoever so my uh my u.s team they're all sports fanatics and they'll use like uh, giddy up or layup or wally or whatever and i just you know i'm looking at the screen going i speak three languages i need someone to translate you know
1: The whole nine yards, the hole-in-one, the, yeah, okay.
2: I mean, up until about 10 years ago, I thought there was a 60-yard line in football. (laughs) But if that tells you my lack of knowledge, yeah, it's bad. Oh, I
1: love it. I love the honesty. All right. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I will look forward to seeing you on the virtual stage at RPOA Con 2021. And uh, until then, have fun sprinting.
2: We going to try. All right. Thank you so much. I, this was the best part of my day. Thank you.
0: Oh, glad to hear it. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Big Fish in the Talent Pool. This podcast is independently produced in collaboration with ere.net, and we would love to hear your feedback. You can email Erin directly at E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N at people-results.com. You can also follow Erin on Twitter at Erin McPeterson, connect with her on LinkedIn, and learn more about her practice at people-results.com.